0: Welcome to the Retail
1: Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Behind the Scenes. Coming up on today's show, an interview with Rod Sides, Vice Chairman of Deloitte LLP, and their U.S. retail, wholesale, and distribution leader, Rod will join us to discuss Deloitte's 2021 holiday sales projections, as they released preliminary projections this week. Rod will go through where the numbers came in, but also why Deloitte thinks the numbers will come in where they expect. We'll talk about retail titans, Kroger, and Walmart in the news segment. And we'll look ahead to more small format grocery stores from a Michigan grocery store. Leader. A reminder that you can like us and rate us however you access us, whether that be on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Your ratings certainly do help others to find us if you enjoy the show. Also, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast, both Instagram and Twitter. I've sent Layton some pictures from my recent travels to southern Ohio and also western West Virginia. Giant country, if you will, in terms of the grocery segment. So send some pictures along and we'll see if Layton gets those uploaded on our social media channels. Well, as I mentioned, we've got retail titans in the news section and we'll start with Kroger. Just days after releasing their most recent quarterly earnings last Friday on September 10th, Kroger and Instacart unveil plans for a new partnership. And this partnership has to do with what they call a digital convenience store. And although headlines and then the recapped headlines throughout multiple media outlets claim a pretty high ambition with order, turnaround, and speed, the reality, as we'll talk about here in a second, is a bit more down-to-earth. But as I mentioned, they did release earnings last Friday. We didn't get a chance to talk about it on last week's show as a result of kind of the quick turnaround. we had done a lot of the research and prep already for the show going into Kroger's earnings, and So we did want to talk a little bit about the numbers, but mostly about some things we picked out of the analyst Q&A that you might not have heard about in the intervening week during that earnings call. Now, as far as their numbers are concerned, just a refresher, most grocers expect to see neutral or negative comps for this time period going up against strong early pandemic sales. This is not new if you're a regular listener to the podcast, something we've talked about time and again But that's what we saw here with Kroger, as identical store sales dipped 0.6%. When you exclude fuel, overall sales were down 0.4%. Of course, non-traditional revenue channels have been strong for Kroger, so that helping overall sales along just a little bit in comparison to those identical sales. However, when you look at the two-year stack numbers, which is, again, something we've been doing for a lot of grocers, you see a 14% increase, which is, above many grocers for approximately the same time period when you're looking at comps. And digital sales in particular helped to drive these two-year stack increases, no surprise there, up 114% on that basis, on a two-year stack basis, that is. But beyond the numbers, wanted to talk a little bit about some of the macro trends that we've been watching in the grocery industry and how they might have affected Kroger. Now, Kroger was the first grocer in a little bit to mention price investments actually eroding their gross margin. And price investments, that was a term we heard a lot three to five years ago as there was this so-called price war. You had Kroger, you had Target, you had Walmart, all investing in price along with various regional grocers as well as Albertsons. But something we haven't heard a lot about during the pandemic and many grocers have said regarding inflation certainly that inflationary increases could largely be expected to be passed on to the consumer or absorbed by suppliers in certain circumstances therefore kind of suggesting that there might not be those same investments in price that we were seeing three to five years ago but not all price investments made by Kroger this quarter were as a result of inflation I don't want to give you the wrong idea, some of them certainly were, and trying not to pass that inflation along to the consumer, but some of those investments were made as a result of their belief that investments in certain categories drive loyalty in a larger way than others. So they made price investments in strategic categories, thinking, hey, if we make them in those categories, those people are going to want to come back for more, and our customers are going to want to come back more often, more frequently, and with a larger ticket size. Personalized coupon offerings also were mentioned on the call. Something that you know, if if you have a Kroger membership card, if you live in a market with a Kroger, you've probably gotten multiple mailings over the past several months with several coupons in them. CFO Gary Millerchip mentioned in the analyst Q&A that some increases, as far as inflation is concerned, have been passed on, but only where it makes sense to restructure their pricing model for a product. The indication here was that sometimes they didn't want to restructure a product's pricing model or a product's pricing because doing so, increasing the price, passing that on to the consumer, would actually have, in the long term, kind of a slightly negative effect. However, Kroger did note that these price investments as a whole were a main reason that margins were down slightly, along with the increase expected, that is, in supply chain costs. Also rare for a grocer to mention recently, Higher shrink. And, you know, a year ago, one would guess lower shrink came out of a function of so many out of stocks. And last year's second quarter, that fueled greater product turnover. So you didn't have things going out of date. You didn't have produce essentially rotting or going bad. You didn't have meats going bad or going stale or out of date. But the reason, at least the company indicated that they're seeing higher shrink was organized crime. At least that's what Rodney McMullen blamed on the call. And further, It seems to be happening in various parts of the supply chain, so not only in the customer-facing portions of the store. And Kroger isn't alone in this. Home Depot mentioned something similar during their recent earnings call. But McMullen went on about how not only Kroger, but also Home Depot as well, are seeking to partner with government agencies to kind of reduce organized crime-based shrink in the long term. But for now, shrink is expected to be higher over the next few quarters, something that is kind of unique to be hearing on an earnings call in 2021, but certainly poses a threat in an industry where margins are as slim as what they are in grocery. One other thing that we've been watching, the trend of ticket size and the idea of customers potentially trading up as they have more discretionary income. Of course, a report came out this week noting that the U.S. poverty level has been shrinking. Largely, it's been credited to the stimulus waves, although multiple factors at play there as far as kroger is concerned they are seeing multiple things as far as increase in ticket size one of those things being indeed trading up and this includes private labels buying maybe premium private label products so for kroger that means the private selection brand or even opting for things such as more expensive cuts of meat Kroger seeing a lot of that as ticket size continues to go up. The second thing is customers are just flat out buying more. And whether this is because of lessened food insecurity, because you're seeing the poverty level decrease a little bit, or maybe because stockpiling behaviors have continued, people are just spending more on groceries and essentials in general right now in 2021. At least they are at Kroger. And third, people are buying products packaged in larger quantities. McMullen noted paper products as a driver here, as they were early in the pandemic, but this is something that other retailers, especially value-priced retailers, have noted. For example, Dollar Tree has said in the past that now food products are becoming an issue in terms of sourcing for them because they're having a hard time getting items that are manufactured in smaller packages. So bacon would be a great example of that, whereas you might be able to get, say, a package of Just a few strips of bacon at Dollar Tree in the past, manufacturers are wanting to make larger and larger packages because that's how people are purchasing those products. But now that we've delayed enough by talking about things from the earnings call, let's talk about Kroger's new partnership with Instacart. Their program will be called Kroger Delivery Now and will offer a trimmed down list of SKUs compared to their click list program, of course. About 25,000 SKUs, those SKUs that are most ordered by customers, therefore the whole convenience store play or the convenience play. These products will be made available and this platform will be made available via Kroger's website and app as well as Instacart's new convenience hub on their marketplace. Now SKUs will include fresh categories, essentials, snacks, and also Kroger's meal solutions. As well as over-the-counter medication, things like diapers, paper products, and etc. McMullen was quoted as saying the service expected to reach up to 50 million households because the launch will involve the vast majority of their over 2,700 stores, rather than just being isolated to a few test markets for now. So this is a fairly large rollout, and for Instacart, from their perspective, their convenience offerings have seen orders absolutely explode of late, although partially because offerings have been expanded on their convenience platform they say orders in their convenience option are up 150 percent since this may alone we are talking exponential growth just in the last couple of months they expect this to increase further as they did announce the launch of this new convenience hub in many u.s cities mostly larger markets this convenience hub offers 24 7 shopping for instacart express members delivery-free, provided the orders are greater than $10, and of course that you are an Instacart Express member. Now, the attention-grabber part of the deal, and the part that made headlines throughout the country, was the delivery time, as the press release touted 30-minute delivery times for the new partnership, but when you look a little bit further, this is more of an optimistic view. It's, It's kind of like when you sign up for internet, you see internet speeds from internet service providers says maybe up to a certain number of megs per second the reality is this service will be slightly slower in most markets as again as fast as 30 minutes was the phrase used in the press release so probably looking at a little bit longer than that in most markets especially when traffic becomes a concern especially with larger orders of course but in any case As fast as 30 minutes is still a very quick turnaround, and that's fueled in part, of course, by the trim down list of SKUs that's offered. And ultimately, it's going to be up to Kroger to execute and make it executable for Instacart as far as making those SKUs available in an easy to access location through their stores and making sure that everything is streamlined for those pickers. Now one would guess that going forward this will be a mutually beneficial relationship for both Kroger and Instacart, who have partnered on multiple initiatives already. Ultimately, whether the customer is satisfied is another story. You always have to worry about overpromising and under-delivering, especially with that delivery time. And that's actually something that Walmart has noted regarding the rollout of Walmart Plus it's important to temper expectations and control marketing. Maybe don't go all in with marketing at first because you don't want to overwhelm the platform early on and then have disappointed customers. And Doug McMillan reinforced this actually this past Thursday at a virtual Goldman Sachs conference. Speaking of Walmart Plus, see what I did there with that handy transition? Some valuable research by Deutsche Bank was released. This week, and I did want to talk about that before getting to our interview with Rod Sides. We don't always lend a ton of credence to research or analyst notes because, let's face it, over the years, if you're the type that reads analyst notes or analyst research, many tend to rely on overgeneralizations from small sample sizes. I remember one study released by an analyst or a researcher several years ago studied two parking lots and extrapolated from that that a certain business had traffic massively down across the U.S. So ultimately, it's got to be a larger sample size. Sometimes these notes have very little research at all, even ending up incorrect in some circumstances. But here, Deutsche Bank has been very transparent regarding their research, the size of their research, and we think it's valuable to note here. As a refresher for those that might be unaware, Walmart Plus, as far as a service, is $99 a year or $12.95 a month. You get free grocery deliveries for orders over $35, fuel discounts, prescription discounts, and a few more kind of fringy type things. But Deutsche Bank's research suggests that Walmart Plus, which is, by the way, about a year old, has already been subscribed to by about 32 million U.S. households. And again, they're extrapolating this based on the data that they collected from a pretty substantial survey size. Now, the survey interviewed various U.S. households about their shopping membership preferences, during June and July of this year. And this is something that Deutsche Bank does on a regular basis. Now, while 57% of their survey respondents noted that they use Prime, around 25% of them said they use Walmart Plus. And in prior months that they had done this survey, the number of Walmart Plus users was a lot closer to about 19% of respondents. So we are seeing some pretty quick growth as far as Walmart Plus is concerned. Demographics also were of particular note in the research because it seems like Walmart Plus is appealing to higher income households than are typically associated with Walmart. 61% of Walmart Plus members in the survey noted a household income higher than $50,000. 33%, so one third, make over $100,000 per year. When you compare that to the average Walmart shopper, of course, That number is a little bit higher than the average Walmart shopper. And for context, only 28% of Prime members report making six figures a year. Now, of course, that could be due to the market penetration of Prime, the fact that it reaches more households in general. But there is a lot of crossover between the two programs in this survey. 86% of Walmart Plus members were also Prime members. And the reason this research is important is because Walmart hasn't divulged details on recent earnings calls about the performance of the platform, nor have they really answered reporter questions about it. But these numbers do suggest that there is a meaningful top-line boost from membership fees flowing in from Walmart Plus in addition to capturing return customers from a higher income segment. Deutsche Bank went so far as to call the program at an inflection point as adoption begins to ramp up. So Deutsche Bank Pretty bullish, not only on Walmart, but Walmart Plus in general. But I think this is valuable research worth noting here on the show as comparing Walmart Plus to Amazon Prime. Now, coming up after this break, we'll be talking to Rod Sides, Vice Chairman at Deloitte LLP. We'll be discussing their 2021 holiday sales projections. And as always, he's going to provide color into their data how they get their data and why they think sales for this holiday season will be fairly robust as they released those preliminary numbers this week. is that time of year before the holidays it's the most exciting portion of the calendar for us in retail media because holiday sales projections start coming out and one of the earliest and we've found most accurate projections is that from deloitte to that end we're pleased to be joined by rod sides vice chairman of deloitte llp and u.s retail wholesale and distribution leader to discuss their early 2021 projections rod welcome back to the show
0: thanks glad to be with you
1: First, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a background about the annual holiday forecast here and how long you've been doing it, how the numbers are crunched, that type of thing.
0: Well, we've been doing this for the holidays about 35 years now. And so the economic forecast we've been doing for over 15 years. And we look at a couple of different factors when we do that. You know, we always look at savings rate. That usually is a pretty good indicator of, you know, how healthy folks' wallets are, bank accounts are as they hit the holidays. And then things like unemployment, we always factor in as well, because when we find a robust job market, generally folks are a little more optimistic about their prospects for making sure they make it through the holiday season, et cetera. So those two factors point to a really strong holiday season this year. At least that's, that's what it looks like initially.
1: Well, let's start off with that big question, that top line. What are the expectations for holiday sales growth this year?
0: Well, uh, We think we're going to see a growth somewhere between 7 and 9%. We think the momentum that we're seeing post-COVID is going to continue to carry over as we go into the holiday season. We see the consumers really wanting to reconnect. We think there's some categories that will come roaring back. You know, last year's services and travel, et cetera, were down pretty dramatically. We think with some of the vaccination rates, et cetera, that we're seeing, that folks are going to be back out there, and they're going to travel more than they did last year. And So that's going to go into that total spin, and we think that's going to rebound pretty nicely.
1: And for historical perspective, that projected increase, that 7 to 9% projected increase, is one of the higher projected increases for the last little while, and certainly for the better part of the last decade. Where does this place in terms of just historically looking at the numbers, looking at either sales increases, whether they be projected or actual?
0: These will be the biggest zero on year rise that we've seen probably in over 10 years. I went back and looked at the detail. I mean, we've been averaging somewhere between say four and six percent even in the better years. And so we see this as really a kind of a breakout year as folks look to catch back up perhaps to the holiday season they had last year. The other thing that's really interesting is we see e com also growing, continue to grow somewhere between eleven and fifteen. And just remember that's off a much bigger base than we saw, you know, over the last several years. So again, we think the whole movement online is gonna continue.
1: So we've got robust e-commerce growth, we've got robust overall holiday sales, and you talked about some of the factors that are driving this. What are we seeing as far as consumer saving rates, and what are we seeing as far as consumer confidence, which is something you and I talk about a lot?
0: Well, I think the consumer is is more confident than they've been in the past in terms of the economic prospects. So last year, when we asked a lot of questions about well, how comfortable do you feel shopping, et cetera, most folks were a little bit about the impact of the virus. This year, we're seeing folks kind of rally back and they're looking to spend pretty dramatically. We'll know more in about a month when we do a more detailed study, but generally speaking, we're seeing the the consumers come back with confidence. And if you look at what's happened for say the first eight months of the year from a retail perspective, I mean, it really has been a record year. So we think we're gonna continue to see that as folks are more confident about where they are and more confident about moving around.
1: As you alluded to, of course, there's a more detailed study coming out in October, but I did want to ask you, just as far as the overall expectation is concerned, you know, last year we saw the holiday season spread out just a little bit. What is the expectation as far as the sales cadence this year? Will we see a similar effect to to last year when Prime Day got moved back to October, or is it going to fall more into the traditional holiday cadence?
0: I think we're going to see it be earlier, not necessarily because the impact last year, you know, moves people into that. But I think the worry about stockouts. some of the supply chain issues that have gotten a lot of press, has really started to have the consumers be concerned about whether or not they can find the goods they want. So I think what we're going to find is that folks are going to move a little quicker. Now, again, some of the stockouts may be real, some may be perceived in terms of challenges, but I think if the pandemic taught us anything, That is that the supply chain is pretty much fragile for many of us. And as a result, you may want to go ahead and get that particular item when you see it because it may not be there in a week.
1: And that leads right into the next thing I wanted to ask because, as you mentioned, e-commerce sales expected to bounce up once again about 11 to 15% year over year, even as they've kind of eased for some of these retailers over the summer months. What are some of the impacts or potential impacts this might have on retailers and logistics firms who are already stretched thin? Because I know you're in communication with a lot of these retail companies who are experiencing these supply chain and logistics issues.
0: Well, a lot of the challenges really are on the inbound side. If you think about the capacity that we're seeing coming from Burris and other places, being able to clear through the ports can be a challenge for certain goods. And so I think that's going to continue to be an issue as we're doing the holidays. I was hoping it would have worked itself out by now. I think we're probably nine months away from that being able to to really work itself out overall. So that's going to be one set of challenges. And then the last mile, there has been some added capacity, obviously, with some new interest in the market. But with the growth that we're seeing, that continues to be a pinch point for many retailers as they go into the holidays. So while many are planning and preparing for it, you know, when you get to that crunch time, you've got to be able to get those goods delivered. That's going to be a big challenge for many of them to make sure that that capacity is there.
1: You mentioned kind of in the early going that there are some categories projected to maybe pop up this year where they were somewhat muted or attenuated last year. And of course, I don't want to spoil the entirety of the October report. And I know you guys are still crunching the numbers for that. But just generally speaking, what are some categories that you at Deloitte see potentially kind of leading the charge here for the holiday season?
0: Well, there's a couple I've got my eye on. I mean, we've seen food and beverage really increase over the last four or five years. Now that we're going to spend more time probably entertaining folks in our homes and, and perhaps out, as we were unable to last year. I could see that category growing dramatically. I think there's a chance that we'll see apparel do quite well because for many of us, you know, the tops business has been good. The bottoms business, not so much as we're spending all this time on the camera. So there's probably times now that, uh, that apparel could come back pretty well through the holidays. And generally, apparel is in the top two categories that we find in the holiday if I go back historically and think through that. So, so to me, those are ones that are worth watching as we go into that. Uh, electronics were incredibly strong in the back to school, back to college. So I'm looking for that also to be an area that might grow as folks look to improve the, you know, the, the overall experience in the home, et cetera. So to me, those are ones that bear watching as we're going to holidays.
1: And you mentioned electronics so strong here in the back-to-school, back-to-college sales period. I'm curious to what extent other seasonal sales that we see leading up to the holidays kind of informs these holiday projections and what we saw in back-to-school, how that might inform consumer behavior in the last quarter of the year.
0: Well, usually it's a pretty good guide for what the consumer behavior is going to be, at least in terms of the total spend. And it was a pretty robust season that we saw as folks came back. So I think we're going to continue to see that as well, and the categories usually perform pretty consistently in terms of you know what people are buying, et cetera. Again, I think there's been so much a move for online schooling that that takes itself over into the holiday season as you know, folks look to continue to improve the speed at which they're able to download information. I think the movement to 5G is going to also be something worth watching as folks are looking to be able to have you know, more bandwidth capability, et cetera, on the go, and these devices are going to have to be able to do that and drive that to the consumer. So, again, worth watching as we go through the holiday season.
1: And then I'm curious because, as we talked about, no two holiday seasons are alike, but the last two holiday seasons, or 2020 at least and 2021, are poised to be very, very unique in terms of navigating the pandemic, in terms of navigating for many people a new way of life. What are some difficulties in terms of forecasting, in terms of running data for holiday seasons that we've really never seen anything like these before?
0: Uh, that's a great question. I think a lot of it, it really comes around two areas. I, mean, one of the same, um, I would say macro-level forces that, you know, folks are thinking through. So, for instance, what happens with the impact of inflation right now? and That's getting a lot of press. At the end of the day, on a macro-level, you know, we probably work self out. At least our economist team thinks it does, you know, in 12 to 18 months, et cetera. So that's going to have a little impact. That makes it tough. When you think about the categories themselves, that makes it tough. I mean, we didn't necessarily foresee all the growth in the durable goods that we saw over the last year, and yet, you know, people were outfitting – home gyms, they spent time refurbishing their house, building materials went to the roof in terms of overall demand. So we probably wouldn't have thought that that would be the case. So when you look at it in aggregate, you say, okay, you know, what category is going to pick up at those categories have you know, performed really, really well and does that continue? So it just makes it tough to kind of think through that in terms of what that overall impact might be. But in general, you know, we go back to savings rate being a big driver, unemployment being a big driver wage rates being big drivers and when those are trending generally in the right direction that's what gives us some assurances that the holiday season itself while we it's hard to predict specific categories will be pretty strong
1: some great insight there into how these numbers have been arrived at and once again rod thank you for joining us on the show and we'll look forward to our next conversation and the next set of forecasts from deloitte thank you look forward to it As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. It's always great having Rod on the show to talk about Deloitte's research. And once again, just looking historically, Deloitte has typically traditionally been Fairly accurate as far as their projections, which is significant because, let's face it, their projections oftentimes come out earlier than most other outlets and certainly earlier than that of the NRF. In any case, we want to look ahead this week in our Looking Ahead segment to Michigan-based grocery and really general merchandise chain, Meijer, as they open their fourth small-format location. Now, long time, and I mean very long time listeners of the podcast will remember back in 2017 we recorded an interview with a local Grand Rapids reporter discussing Bridge Street Market opening up in Grand Rapids. That was Meyer's first small format location, a location that ended up being just under 30,000 square feet in downtown Grand Rapids. And we kind of talked about the fact that that was likely to be a one-off deal just because, again, Meyer based in western Michigan And they were wanting to serve the Grand Rapids community. But since then, in the intervening years, more stores have popped up. In Royal Oak, which is a more or less well-to-do suburb of Detroit, Woodward Corner Market opened up. And in Lansing, the state capital, Capital City Market opened up. And now we get word that Rivertown Market is opening up in downtown Detroit. And again, small format grocery compared to the over 100,000 square feet that's typical for a Meyer store. In this case, this will be a little bit bigger than some of their other smaller format locations, about 42,000 square feet. And it's located in Detroit's East Jefferson Corridor, opening slated for just a few weeks from now, October 6th. And the reason I'm using this to look ahead is we've seen really differing goals and models surrounding small format stores. We know, for example, that Meyer seems to be very bullish on these small format stores. And I think that's important because actually getting a chance to spend some time in Michigan during this summer and a couple of different occasions, some Michigan residents seem to think that, that Meijer's look, their feel, etc. is becoming just a little bit stale. So this is a chance to kind of refresh that in the mind's of customers and consumers. Also, I think it's important because you look at the grocery industry as a whole, and we see Kroger beginning to build brick and mortar locations again after they had kind of stalled out. Many of Kroger's opening brick and mortar locations are of the higher square footage marketplace format variety. Meanwhile, you look at a retailer like Ivy, who is opening marketplace style stores. Not that long ago, they kind of scaled back and said, hey, we want maybe smaller square footage stores because the bigger ones, more difficult to operate, easier to lose money there. So I think there's this kind of internal battle going on in the grocery industry between whether you go larger square foot or whether you go smaller square foot in more urban areas. And of course, it's not mutually exclusive. Meyer can build these small format stores and just as easily build a 120,000 square foot behemoth in a suburb somewhere. But I think it is important to note that this seems to be a regular thing for Meyer. They've now opened four of these stores over the last four years. The ability to scale up as far as this concerned is pretty high because in Michigan you have a number of different markets, not only Lansing and Grand Rapids and Detroit, but markets like Kalamazoo for example, even markets like Muskegon where you can set up a smaller square footage store very easily in a downtown area maybe you look at ann arbor as a target for this where you've got the university there right near their downtown area and it's kind of a destination downtown if you will so i think overall for meyer there is some white space here but i'm just kind of curious to see and look ahead to how the grocery industry attacks expansion and brick and mortar expansion which we know is important over the next several years, and one retailer that I didn't mention is Target. They have been really bullish on opening urban locations that are 20 to 30,000 square feet, reduced number of SKUs, higher amount of grocery offerings, and the like. So I think all of this is going to be intriguing to look ahead to over the next five to six years as we get a feel on what customers want. And it's likely to differ, of course, by the part of the country you're in. But at least in the Midwest, Meijer sees... A purpose, upper Midwest that is, Meyer sees a purpose behind these smaller square foot stores in more urban areas. So that'll do it for our podcast here this week. Coming up next week, we'll be joined by Sodis Shash Anand. He'll join us to discuss their recent research regarding logistics and supply chain as the holiday season is upon us. Some stunning downtime numbers that he'll talk about as well in regards to technology for these logistics providers. They interviewed over a 1,000 logistics providers throughout North America for this data. So really excited to get to talk to Shash once again on the show. It'll be his third appearance on the show. So we look forward to that about seven days from now, which is when we hope to see you next. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com
0: and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.